Welcome to Always Andersonville, the podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Jean. Today, I'm joined by my special guest host, Jean Wagendorf, Associate Director of the Greater Ravenswood Chamber of Commerce. Jean is a lifelong Chicagoan and is passionate about maintaining Ravenswood's standing as a hub for the creative industry. I am thrilled to have him with me as we welcome Bridget Gaynor, the Cook County Commissioner of the 10th District. Elected to the board in 2010, Commissioner Gaynor has used her leadership role in the nonprofit, government, and corporate sectors. She has worked tirelessly to create pension reform solutions, was able to institute the Cook County Land Bank, and has continued to create new assets for regional workforce development, to name a few. Welcome, Commissioner Gaynor. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, well, we always start off on the podcast with asking um, with asking our guests a little bit about themselves. So, could you could you share with us, you know, a little bit about yourself and and how you got to where you are today? You bet. So, I am a Chicago native. I grew up on the Southwest Side. I'm the oldest of six children, and uh, went to U of I. Moved to New York. Uh, I was a community organizer. I did. I lived in a lay religious community with church, actually, interestingly, trained as an organizer, which I think is probably gave me my initial love of politics. And uh, when I came back to Chicago, I got a job at Jane Adams Resource Corp, which is right on Ravenswood or was. And that was really, you know, in the world where the North side and the South side don't really mix that much. Maybe it was probably not as much as it was before. Uh, that was my, I think maybe the first time I'd been to this neighborhood and that was in 1994 and I started there. I got an apartment at, uh, at Montrose and Sunnyside and then, you know, started working at Sun High School and City Hall and through whole machinations. And now I live two blocks away from there with three kids and, you know, life moves on. So, um, yeah, that's my story. And it's, it's woven in and around this neighborhood in ways that I probably could have never predicted as a young person. I was just going to ask how you got into community organizing. So, you know, I graduated college and I knew I wanted to do some kind of service, right? I wanted to stay in the U.S. I always felt kind of compelled to do something like that. And so I went into the Jesuit Volunteer Corps and I live, you live in community with other volunteers. You work at a, you know, in some job that otherwise probably couldn't afford you. We made $85 a month was our, we got, we lived in a rectory, made $85 a month. That was our spending money in New York city. Um, and I, my job was organizing. And so I worked for this, um, an order of nuns called the sisters of good shepherd, but also a guy named Jeff Canada, who you may know, he started this Harlem children's zone and we organized around opening up school buildings to their communities. So this was in the early nineties in New York. It was kind of the tail end of the crack epidemic. And, you know, kids didn't have safe places to go now, like they don't do, you know, then and and now that problem hasn't really gone away. And so we organized for three years to change the contract with the operating engineers and to open up the school buildings to their community. So, and then we ran an after school program. Um, And I did that. And then when I moved back to Chicago, Mayor Daly was trying to do the same thing. And so I um, got hired to kind of help put together a community plan in Uptown and Edgewater to um, open up, start a community center at Sun High School. So in 1994, we opened up the youth net at Sun High School and it was after school programs into the evening basketball. We taught GED, English as a second language. We had community meetings there. And, you know, there was, it's interesting to have a big high school that was right in the middle of a neighborhood. You had a lot of the neighbors who either didn't have kids or didn't send them to public school or to the high school. 
never had been in the building, really wondered like, you know, what was it all about? At that time, Sen was what they called an open enrollment school. Kids came from all over the city. So it didn't really have a neighborhood feel to it. And so I felt like we were able to break down a lot of barriers between the high school and the community. And we just gave people access to a building they were paying for anyway through their taxes. And then they felt like they got value out of it. And it created an opportunity for people to interact with one another in ways that they might not have otherwise. So it was a phenomenal opportunity. And you know, years later, I went to business school at University of Chicago for an MBA. And so much of what I learned as an organizer to, you know, really understand the systems that we live in, to really understand what incentivizes people, what motivates them, how to get them to, you know, join on to in common cause with what you're doing. I learned all those things as an organizer. They have an economic context, but they also have a kind of a social change and social justice context. So I credit that that organizing background with the ability to create, you know, like the apprentice program, the land bank, there are other things that I've done that quite frankly, take a long, long time. And if you don't have the patience to think, you know, the land bank, you know, I started the Cook County land bank, it's going to do its thousandth house this year, all, and we've recruited all small developers, mostly black and Latino, but we're, we're nine years into that. Like it's, you know, this stuff doesn't happen overnight and you got to make a commitment and, and actually, not just see it as a duty, but to see it as this cool thing that you get to work on over time with all these other people. So I think organizing is probably the most relevant skill you could ever have for so much neighborhood work as well as politics. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, going back to your work at Sun, you look at Sun High School now and it's incredible. I mean, most yeah. most CPS schools are in these, these fantastic, beautiful buildings, right? But that that is, um, that is kind of one of my, kind of favorite buildings, favorite institutions mm-hmm. in Chicago, the, the, the lawn and, and, and you see how far that school has come and, and where it is now. Um, and it is a, a, just such an important vital, um, you know, school for those, the kids in the neighborhood and for yeah. others who apply now to the Sun Arts program. Yep, absolutely. So we had, um, we had our intern work a bit on your questions and she is from, she is from um, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And Sioux Falls, okay. South Dakota is the largest city in South Dakota um, with about 200,000 people. And so she was very fascinated by, she's very fascinated by Chicago politics in general. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe you could take a moment just to, to explain kind of what a commissioner is for, for maybe those that don't understand. Which is most everybody. So let's start <laughs> Um, and so the way I think it's easiest to describe is the difference between the city and the county. And they really are like, you know, two puzzle pieces that fit together. The city, which more people are familiar with, does like the public schools, fire department, the police department, the parks, streets, you know, like streets and sanitation, but also like this road, street infrastructure and all those things. That, that's what the city does. The county does like the mirror opposite of those things. So we have you know, the city has the police department, the county has the court system, the prison system, the state's attorney and the public defender. And it's logical because one, you know, one entity that has a certain control arrests people, but someone in a different column of control does the prosecution, the defense and the sentencing, because, you know, it's division of, of power there. And then they also do um, public health. So the city has a small public health department that really is more about education whereas the county runs the public hospital. So we have the hospitals and the clinics, and so they serve that part of the population. The county has the forest preserves, which are bigger and less active recreation, more just ability to be in nature. 
And then lastly is they do all the functions around real estate and tax collection. So assessing your the value of your house, your taxes, collecting that taxes, and then distributing the taxes to everyone, to all the municipalities in the county. And so that's a pretty common separation of powers across the entire country. So if you look at a county anywhere in Sioux Falls or Chicago or anywhere, they do those exact same functions. And so it's a complement to what happens at the city. And for me, the thing about the county that was always most compelling is, you know, I had done a lot of work with teenagers and young people in the first probably 10 years of my life uh, in New York and in Chicago. I spent a bunch of time at the juvenile detention center, which, you know, for the old timers on the call, it used to be called the Audi home. And, you know, those issues around the systems that support either the most vulnerable, or you could also argue they support the places where society really has failed. So the jail, the juvenile detention center, you know, so much about who ends up in county jail has a lot more to do with what's going on in their neighborhood, ability to post bond, you know, tons of things around social dysfunction, racism, that, um, you know, unpacking those systems has always been really interesting to me. And so I've been able to do work with women in, in the jail and young people at the juvenile detention center in a way that's been really deeply satisfying for me. And I've been able to make some changes that I think are really impactful, so. But we are the least sexy part of government. So I throw that out there, but you get to do, you get to do a lot of work under the radar, which is my favorite thing to do. Uh, you mentioned things that are under the radar. That's kind of a perfect segue into something <laughs> I wanted to touch on. You talked about uh, or touched on a couple of serious topics there that I'm sure yeah. we'll round back to. Uh, you also mentioned the Cook County uh, Forest Preserves. Uh, mm -hmm. And when I think of our city's natural resources, you know, typically people think of the lakefront, the river, our park system. Can you talk a little bit about Chicago's forests and maybe how those have been beneficial to residents during the pandemic? It's, it's a great question. And, you know, we talk a lot about how we're grateful to some of the, you know, civic leaders that came before us for protecting the lakefront, that Chicago has this open, free and clear lakefront. And that's such a benefit to let people blow off some steam and have public recreation. The same story could be told with a similar group of kind of like, you know, civic leaders at the time who also saved parts of the county from being developed too quickly for natural space. And what it really was meant to be was like, they describe it as like the lungs of the county, like fresh air and great, you know, the natural space is quiet and it allows people in the same way that the lakefront allows people to ride their bike or rollerblade or take a walk, the forest reserves allow people to just get out of urban life, be in some quiet, walk around, you know, be with nature. There's so much now that we know about the restorative values of just being around nature, not, not plugged in, not listening to lots of other sounds. And so people who thought ahead hundred plus years ago to stop and preserve for the public this land is incredibly impactful. It's the same thing as, you know, we don't, we would never want to see a factory on the lakefront. You don't need to necessarily fill up every bit of open space with housing developments and, um, and roadways. And so people, I think now, because our, our recreational options were limited, I think more and more people realize the value of the forest reserves during the pandemic. Absolutely. I know, um, you know, we had to live for a, a short while in a different neighborhood in the city and we lived off um, out off by Foster um, and almost the 94 and there's so many hidden trails back there um, right. and undiscovered and it was 
it was it brought just like so much kind of you know surprising joy for for um, myself and my kids over the summer kind of being able to kind of go back there and you feel like you're in a whole different place even though you're still mm-hmm. in the city limits so um, yeah absolutely so kind of going back um, you know what was one of your first you know one of your first acts as county commissioner you know was to create uh, the first Cook County Pension Committee. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and you talked about it a little bit, but what, you know, what sparked your passion for pension reform and what was the process of, of creating that committee? You know, pension reform is, you have to look at a budget as you've got a limited set of resources and you have things you want to invest in, spend money on, support, and you need to find a balance because the thing about, um, I started looking into pension reform. I was on a panel uh, that Mayor Daly ran in 2007. So this was before the financial crisis. And at that time, public sector pensions were underfunded because they were designed for a time period where <clears throat> they expected people to work, retire at around 55 or 60, and then quite frankly, not live basically like eight years longer, maybe 10. And so the actuarial map made it such that some people live longer, some people live less, but it all worked out. Plus, there was a lot less you could spend on healthcare because there just weren't as many innovations. So fast forward to you know the 2000s, 2007. All of a sudden, people are retiring at 55 and they're living to 85. So they contributed for 25 years and they're drawing for 30 years. That doesn't make any sense, and it's not sustainable. And a defined benefit pension plan is the best mechanism for retirement security for individuals, but it just has to evolve with. Um, demographics and and age and life expectancy and all those things. It has to be a living thing. It can't just be fixed in amber, you know, in 1975. And so the financial crisis was probably the most devastating thing to come to public sector pensions in its history. It erased in a matter of months, about 25% of the value of the public sector funds in the city and the county and, and the state in the one fell swoop. And the the math about pensions that's really important for people to understand is employees contribute into the pension, employers make a pension contribution, just like they do with a 401k or social security. The difference in a defined benefit plan is then you have the interest income off the money that's already been contributed that helps build that, that pot of money for the future. The thing that people don't really understand is the employee and employer contributions only represent about 30% of what goes into that pot every year. The other 70% comes from investment income. So every single year, if you think about how much goes in to keep the fund solvent, 30% of it's the employer and the employee, but 70% of it is investment income. If all of a sudden you have 25% less to invest off of, you don't, you're not picking up that contribution like you need it. And so it was devastating. And so that's where you really started to see the focus on it. And you know, one way to look at the focus is to say, oh, the funds are too rich. Why are these people getting this fund, this pension? You know, this is too much money. Taxpayers can't afford it. The other option is to look at and say, okay, well, maybe you can't retire at 50. You can retire at 60. You can't have a 3% compounding COLA. You can have a 1.5% COLA flat. You know I mean? Like there's ways to make it viable. I, it would be an absolute tragedy if defined benefit pension plans died or fell apart or shrank. Well, they are already shrinking. It's really only unions and public sector who still have them, few few big companies. Because it is, like I said before, it is the absolute best way to guarantee retirement security for individuals. But we just haven't kept up with making it, you know, keep up with life expectancy as we have it now. 
does responding to a financial crisis make it easier to bring or create a working group that involves representatives from labor and local government? Or does a crisis like that drive even deeper a wedge between those two sides? You know, usually crises allow you to come together. The thing about pensions in Illinois is that they're codified in the constitution. So you are not allowed to make any changes unless you open up the constitution. And one of the, you know, in 1996, I think, they said, we're gonna open up the constitution and we're gonna do two things. We're gonna implement a progressive income tax, which is what the left wanted. And we're gonna do pension reform, which is what the, the right wanted. And it, it was defeated because it was totally opposed by both the Chamber of Commerce and Labor. So neither one of those institutions had any interest in this happening. Um, you could argue that if that had happened in 1996, we might be in a different spot right now. Um, so uh, there was a lot of talk when, when Governor Pritzker started to put forth the progressive income tax that shouldn't it be joined together with pension reform? That didn't happen. That might have been why it wasn't successful. But you know, um, you have to you have to change the Illinois Constitution if you're going to do any reform of pensions. And what drove the opening up of the the Constitution back? And you said 1986. Well, they they put it on the ballot to open up the Constitution, and it was defeated. Okay. So the people in the state said no thanks. No thanks. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And it was the same thing that just lost when Pritzker wanted to do the progressive income tax. It was a vote to open up the constitution to change that and then also fail. Is that because of hesitancy to re-examine the state's constitution or concerns that another side might come in with other agendas? I'm curious about that. I think it's because there's people who have a vested interest in keeping the pensions the way they are and they worked hard against it. And then on the tax side, I think there's people who don't wanna have a progressive income tax. And so you have two really, you know, really, really, really strongly held beliefs in two camps and they work hard either for or against what they want to have happen. It just isn't enough to bring the middle forward. So we'll see. Bringing the middle forward sounds a lot like community organizers speak. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> so you also, uh, when we were talking about some of your accomplishments or some of your priorities, uh, mm -hmm in your time at the, as a Cook County commissioner, um, we, you touched a little bit on the Cook County Land Bank. Um, can yes. you talk about what that is? I know that it's received a lot of praise uh, locally and nationally and uh, sounds like something people should know about. Yeah, so the thing about making change, I believe in government, it's why I love local government so much because you're close to the problem. The, the land bank came about after the financial crisis, you started to see all these people were getting letters saying, we're gonna foreclose, you're, you know, you're late because they lost their job and they couldn't afford this mortgage that they had gotten. And so we set up a, a legal aid clinic at the court to just to give people, because people have a lot of rights when it comes to being foreclosed upon. They didn't know what those are and it was coming out of nowhere because you'd had this huge housing boom and all of a sudden then you had this big drop and all these people who were first time homeowners now were right on the edge. We did the legal aid clinic at the court and then we did a, um, a vacant building ordinance that said, hey, if you're the bank that issued the mortgage, it took sometimes two years to get these things out of court. While it's going through court, you at least have to cut the grass and secure the building. Otherwise, the whole neighborhood is going to suffer. We did that. And then what we realized is, what I realized is, you know, driving around with some aldermen, Michelle Harris on the South Side in particular, is there was neighborhoods that were very stable, Chatham parts of Auburn Gresham that had tons of vacancies. And what I realized is 
what's broken about this? Cause this, this market is very attractive for people. They want to live here. So like what's going on. And after lots of conversations, and this gets back to the point about any good answer means that, it, you know, it's never the thing that you start out thinking it is. So often when people look at the lack of development in communities, especially black or Latino communities, it's like, oh, there must not be enough lending. There must not be enough money there. And you're like, actually that ends up not being the answer. The answer here was the process to get access to a vacant house that had been vacant. Someone was trying to foreclose upon it. So someone else wants to buy it. It ends up being like this two year process in, in the court system. Even worse, if someone had walked away from the house, they stopped paying the taxes. It gets kind of dumped into this tax delinquency bucket. Oh my God. There's literally like 75 steps you have to go through to get a vacant house. And the irony is everybody benefits when somebody buys the house, rehabs it and sells it. And someone lives in that all, you know, because government in a vacant house, government's lighting the streets, they're picking up the garbage, they're putting out the fire, they're doing policing it. They're doing all that spending. The only money they're not spending is sending a kid to school. So you're spending all the money you're getting, you're not getting any taxes. And so what we looked at was, you know, why is it that they're always bringing developers in from the outside to do this building? And then people say, oh, we don't have local developers that can do it. Mostly we don't have black developers that can do it. The second is, why is it so hard to get access to a vacant house when everybody wants it to happen? And so what we did in starting the land bank was we just looked at this piece of the problem. And you know, we don't need to be lenders and we don't need developers. We went in and we cleared tax and we cleared title. We did the two years in court ahead of that. So then at the end of that time, we have a website. There's all these houses on the website. You just, you go, the house is $17,000. It probably, because it requires, you know, $70,000 worth of work, but you're, you're buying that house and you walk away in 30 days. Like it's not a long process and you know what you're getting and you don't have to wonder. And once we eliminated all those barriers to entry, well, there's a ton of people. There's 500 small developers now. The vast majority of them are black or Latino. They're developing things in their own neighborhood for, you know, basically naturally occurring affordable housing. We're selling it for home ownership. You know, we're eight years into this now. We have a $20 million budget, none of which is public money. It's all supported through just the income of buying and selling these houses. And we're about to do our thousandth house. And over 850 of those are for home ownership. So it was vacant, now it's home ownership. And so often when we look at a problem that we see in a community, we're like, how do I come in with all my knowledge and my money and my position of power? And I, how do I fix the broken part of you? And you're like, actually, more often the answer is, how do I look at the system and figure out what about the system is broken? And it's not broken for everybody. For some people, it works perfectly fine and they like it just the way it is. And you have to unwind those, those things that don't actually add value. The, the, the beauty about the land bank is the simplicity of it is that we kind of decoupled two things. What we wanted to see was people in the neighborhood getting the house, redeveloping it and selling it so somebody lives there. That is a skill set that requires you to be able to have money to buy it, to know how to rehab and to know how to market a home. Okay, that has nothing to do with the ability to have a lawyer for two years, navigate the court system and navigate delinquent taxes. That is, you know, if you, if you have to have those things together, if they're, if they're locked together, then the pool of people that can be successful is smaller, wealthier, connected, whiter. If you decouple them and you get rid of the court thing first, and it's only about rehab and redevelopment and, and real estate, there's a ton of people that can do that. And guess what? They don't need anything from you. They need you to get that stuff out of their way 
and then they do their own job. And so this is not about like creating a system of picking winners and losers or me coming in with gifts of like TIF funds or, you know, special grants or, you know, even, even these wonderful investment funds that the city comes up with, they're still picking who gets it and who doesn't. Better to get the barriers out of the way. And then, you know, people don't need an alderman. They don't need a lobbyist. They don't need a lawyer. They just need themselves. That's just an incredible number. Um, yeah. And to kind of remove that, remove those barricades for people, because oftentimes, right, like, I mean, even kind of navigating what's come out of COVID, right, is is that kind of bureaucratic work that needs to be done, people often will just give up and then they don't get what they want or need. Um, and um, and it, it, it increases kind of that gap between kind of who's able to kind of find the right people to kind of handle that harder component for them. Um, and so this is just incredible, but go ahead, Jean. Oh, I just wanted to make sure I heard 850 uh, out of a thousand were for home ownership, which is what? remarkable. Um, we super stress on home ownership because look, the word equity is an interesting word to me because it means, you know, more than equality, but it means this, but if you have equity in your house, you have your own resources and you then get to make your own decisions and you control more of your own destiny. So when we think about building equity, we also think about it as building equity in a home, meaning that's what you own, you know, so you are less you're less subject to gentrification. Gentrification is a tragedy when you can't monetize the upside. You know, remember when Wicker Park and Ukrainian Village went from like lots of old Polish people and Ukrainians into Hipsterville? Well, it's not so bad when you get to the people who live there get to monetize the the now greater value of their community. It's a whole nother thing when you're a renter and you don't own and you just have to leave because you can no longer afford it, but you don't get any of those benefits from the neighborhood that you help build up. Are you seeing many private developers with interest in the land bank or is it not something that they even qualify for? Or I'm curious okay. about that. It's all private developers. We do nothing with, we do nothing with, a, with public developers <coughs> or the city. Um, we, the whole point of the land bank is to make sure that it's kind of a little bit of an even playing field. So if you're a small person and most of our guys are small, but I will tell you like the, the very first house we did at the land bank was at 83 and Craig Gear on the South side. And, um, this couple bought it, Jason and Esther Williams. Um, and they bought the house. It had been vacant for a decade and they rehabbed it. It had five offers immediately. So they did a phenomenal job. It's beautiful. And they have, that was their, the first house for us. And, um, they had done some other projects, but now they're moving on, they're doing commercial stuff. So they, then they did more houses with us. Then they took on multi-unit buildings. Then they did commercial. So, you know, they don't need anything from us or the city, you know, and it's just that you want to open up this pipeline because in the system that exists for tax delinquent property is probably the most clear example of, of, you know, people toss around this term systemic racism all the time. And, you know, it's basically built and it's been tweaked over time and it benefits the people that, you know, want to go in and make a killing in a neighborhood that's gentrifying. So if you look at the scavenger sale, which is where all the long-term delinquent property goes, um, there's 40,000 properties in that, in the scavenger sale. And they, that represents about half of all the tax delinquent property in Cook County, but 80% of what's in the scavenger sale, which is long-term bacon is in black neighborhoods. And it takes by law three years to get a property out of there. And in the last decade, 
with just the private developers who are pretty much, you know, hedge funds, banks, large buyers, there's only about a hundred of those properties that actually get redeveloped. The rest of them just stay there. They get returned. They get dumped back in. This year, the land bank, we, we went into the scavenger sale in 2015. And um, this year we're going to bring out 2000 properties. So more than every other tax buyer has done combined in the last decade in one year. And it's because we're not looking to make a killing in gentrification. We're looking to clear title and tax on a bunch of single family homes and two to four flats and get them out into the market. And, you know, we, like it's a blessing and a curse. I think it's great. We're, we're changing the system. We're breaking down the barriers. You know, we have come under a lot of fire, you know, mostly in things kind of purported by the tax buyers because they like the system just the way it is. So, you know, whenever you see a system that looks dysfunctional and irrational, it's not dysfunctional for everyone. It's just dysfunctional for most people, but some people like it just the way it is. And so in our, you know, in my opinion, when we prove through doing a thousand of these houses that there is a viable market and not one of them received a dime of public subsidy, it's completely supported by the community. And it basically, you know, underscores the myth that quote unquote, these neighborhoods don't have a market value or you don't, there isn't the ability to redevelop them locally. It's nonsense. And so we've proven that because the, the thing to me that makes me crazy is you imagine driving around certain communities and you see a lot of vacant housing and people think like, why aren't people developing this housing and why aren't they doing more about it? And you want to say, you know why? Because for love or money, they couldn't get access to it because the government that we control, run and fund has made it impossible. And so, you know, my greatest gift of being able to be in this job on the county board is to be able to look at a system like that and try to dismantle piece by piece the things that get in people's way. I just feel, um, you know, I, I mean, listening to all of this, it's just incredible to kind of learn about, but folks that are listening to this podcast and are hearing your words and kind of want to take action steps to kind of get involved yeah. with this, what is the best way for them to do that? That's a great question. And it depends on the, the issue. You know, I, uh, my big issues are the land bank and the, it's really, that's about like redeveloping neighborhood development, all of that stuff. We have a bill in Springfield First time we've ever, it's not the first time we've attempted Springfield. I'm hoping we'll be successful. Usually, you know, it's not really my milieu. So hopefully we'll, we'll do okay. The tax buyers are a very well-funded lobbying group. Um, so you can uh, support that bill, but more importantly, you know, look, there's an opportunity to do community development. There's an opportunity to understand a process better. You know, we, um, when it comes up to, I know that the idea of talking about tax policy puts most people to sleep. Um, but pay attention when, when these local elections come up, you know, that they are important. And, you know, when you get your tax bill and you see where all the money is going, the question is, why do we tolerate a system? I mean, and this is a great question because this is all state law. Why do we tolerate a system that is absolutely ridiculous? Like Cook County is the only system in the, basically the country that allows private tax buyers to come in first before the public has had a chance to come in and say, you know, a city, a town, a community, a county, Hey, I want to redevelop that property. We let these guys in first and instead of letting the public come in and say, okay, what's the best and highest use for this property. So we're trying to make it a little easier for some of the local governments to get access to this property. But I would really, you know, ask your state rep, ask your, your county commissioner, what are they doing about this process? Because the thing about the property taxes in Cook County, it's a zero sum game. If I pay less, you pay more. 
you know, and then the, you know, so if you have all this property that's been pulled out of the, the tax rolls and it's not paying any taxes, then everyone else is paying more. And, you know, since the land bank started, we've returned, you know, $12 million in one-time payments. Like people, we, we said, hey, we're going to redevelop this. If you don't pay your taxes, they pay the taxes. More importantly, and I think more interestingly, there's an additional $5 million in property taxes that gets paid now every year based on properties formerly vacant that the land bank has developed. And so the question is, you know, if you have any interest in this topic, A, I'm always happy to talk to people about it. Um, but it's also this idea of, you know, what are we, are we asking questions about what's fair? Nobody wants to pay more taxes, but it's a lot better when more people are paying a lower amount of taxes than when less people are paying a higher amount. And this is the opportunity I think we have right now. And I think too, a good thing to point out, you know, I mean, obviously like our chamber of commerce and I don't know how it works over in Ravenswood um, with the SSAs and kind of relying on the property taxes then to kind of fund those SSAs for districts, um, you know, and then that money kind of goes into beautification. So how much that would kind of play into neighborhoods where there are vacancies and, 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 and kind of zero property taxes kind of being paid in and, you know, that feeds into like what, who is helping beautify those neighborhoods and the money kind of going into that as well. Totally, right. I mean, property tax, SSAs are like chambers, like a, a hidden gem in really stabilizing communities and keeping them attractive and, and smoothing out some of the bumps that both residents, but also small businesses run into and just, you know, the daily life of trying to run a business in, in the city. And I kind of want to move along to um, kind of, you know, job training, employee development and employment opportunities. Um, you know, we've seen, we've seen over the past year, people kind of losing, losing jobs and trying to find yep. work, but what actions are you taking to kind of mend the gap that was in existence prior to COVID and is even greater now that we've yeah. gone through this pandemic? Well, there's a couple of things I have, I'm doing another webinar, so I, I do have to wrap soon, but <clears throat> I'm doing another webinar today, two next week. I, I don't even know how many I've done up until now. I've been on them with you guys in the past, just about trying to make this, like if there's resources, how do people get them? So that's like the immediate thing. Like, how do we make sure people get unemployment, you know, um, rental assistance <coughs> or PPP loans for their business? So like, that's the first thing. The second thing is looking structurally at what gets in people's way. I mean, one of the things I've worked on in other parts of my life is developing an apprentice program for large employers. So we work with city colleges and we try to create a scenario in which you, again, you decouple, is college a requirement or has we just gotten in the habit and so of hiring only from college for corporate careers? So we've worked with about over the last four or five years, 50 large employers in Chicago and we've created a thousand apprenticeships. And these are in like finance, IT, HR, but they're in large companies, Aon, JP Morgan Chase, um, McDonald's, Walgreens, um, you know, I'm kind of trying to, so many companies around Chicago and really trying to say to us, how do we, how do we look at getting rid of an impediment? And again, people then do their own thing. The next thing is one of the things I'm really starting to work more on and will continue to work more on is this issue of um, women in the workforce and the daycare and care crisis. Um, you know, that I just think absolutely pulled the curtain back on this hodgepodge system that we've relied on. And when you look at the number of women who dropped out of the workforce and also the slower return of mothers as in opposed to other women or other parents, like 
it's not just if you have a child, you're less likely to go back into the workforce. It's like, if you're a woman with a child, you're less likely to go back into the workforce. What has that told us? What does it mean? And, you know, the schools are obviously a huge part of that because that is people's daycare for, to a large degree. They've cobbled that together. Um, you know, I'm on the school board for the archdiocese and, and we spent, oh my God, months, you know, the Cardinal made a decision in May that said, you know, remote learning does not work for many people, including many poor children. And so they figured out a way to bring everyone back. And they've been back in grammar school since August, five days a week with pretty much no, there's not been one case of community spread. You know, kids get COVID, they leave, they come back. High schools are back in halftime. And the question comes, what operational resiliency lessons can we learn from what we just learned in COVID? You know, what works, what doesn't work? How do we come together? Because this is not gonna be the last time we're ever gonna face this issue. So how do we, um, you know, how do we come together and, and do this? Okay, so looking ahead, uh, Commissioner Gaynor, thanks again for spending some time with us today. Um, where do you, where would you like to see the city uh, of Chicago and Cook County in 10 years? And where do you see yourself in 10 years? That's a great question. Um, so where I wanna see the city and the county, so look, I, so I have three children. I have a son down at U of I and I have two daughters, one in high school, one in grammar school. And I say all the time that half of my desire to be in public life is that they want to move back here and live with me till I die. You know, that they never want to leave anywhere else and want to live in Chicago forever. And so, um, you know, in 10 years, I want to see the city of Chicago be a place where lots of people see economic opportunity and it's safe. And they also think like, I want to come back and live here. I, I want to, when I think about my future, I want it to be here. Like I've never thought of ever living anywhere else in my, like I can't imagine living in another place in ever, don't have the slightest desire. And, and not that everyone has to be, you know, militant like that, but I want everyone to look at their future and say, yeah, I have a future here for sure. And it's a safe one and I can do a cool job and I can live in a place that I like with people that I like, I can love where I live. You know, that to me, that everyone gets to love where they live and have a way to support their family and, you know, have a, a good life. That, that's what I want to see for Chicago and Cook County, um, including first and foremost, my own children. So the next thing is for myself, I want to be still doing meaningful things. I want to be still be involved in things that, that I find to be important. You know, I think the pandemic has taught all of us that that this life we constructed with all these events and travel and all that stuff, you know, that could be taken away in a hot second. So what are you doing every day that makes you know that you have a meaningful life? And for me, I hope that in 10 years, um, you know, I'm healthy and all that, but that I'm able to find like the land bank, like the apprentice program, like, you know, the pension issue, other things that still, you know, that I can make an impact and make Chicago a better place to live. Well, thank you, Commissioner Gaynor, for joining us today. And thank you for listening to Always Andersonville, the podcast. For more information about the commissioner's work in Cook County, visit her on Instagram, Facebook, or at her website at BridgetGaynor.com. Show notes on today's episode can be found at Andersonville.org. Always Andersonville, the podcast, is produced by the Andersonville Chamber of Commerce and currently recorded on Zoom. We thank you for your listenership, and if you like the podcast, please subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or your favorite podcasting platform. We are also actively looking for podcast sponsors to sustain our projection. Please email us at info at andersonville.org for more information. Thank you for your continued support, for staying active in our community, and for staying always Andersonville.